Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The passage is also printed in the bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along in the bulletin. If you would like, we're going to be reading a a selection of verses out of this chapter, verses 1 through 14, and then also 31 to 34. As we read these verses, I want to say something before we do, particularly these last verses, 31 through 34, the, the final section we're going to read. Those are probably some of the most famous verses in the book of Jeremiah and some of the most important verses in the book of Jeremiah. Those verses are part of his prophetic announcement of the new covenant that God is going to make with his people. And that, of course, is the covenant that we receive through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, the entire ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You'll recall uh, in the Lord's Supper... Jesus says, when he gives the cup to his disciples, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We read in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, Jesus is the high priest of a new and better covenant than the one known by priests in the Old Testament. And it says, therefore, that his ministry is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So it speaks of Jesus mediating this new covenant. It's, it's fun to preach this right in the middle of our series through Exodus because in Exodus we read of the, the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes it's just generally called the old covenant. The old covenant. And Jesus comes to bring a new covenant. And when Hebrews explains this about Jesus being the high priest of a new covenant, it quotes at length, it's the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and it quotes this passage out of Jeremiah. It says, this is the covenant that Jesus mediates for his people. And so we're going to read this uh, with some sense of expectation. And those words are really the climax of about two chapters, chapter 30 and 31 in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah the prophet is preaching and he's giving the promises, the hope, the expectation to the people. Remember, the people are still in exile. They're in Babylon. They've been exiled out of Israel Uh, They're in slavery in Babylon, but God has spoke to them there through Jeremiah. He's told them to settle there, to build houses, to seek the welfare of the city. We might remember the most, uh, maybe the most famous verses from Jeremiah really are Jeremiah 29, 11, where Jeremiah says, uh, writing the letter to the exiles on behalf of God, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a hope and for a future. Uh, And some of those plans... Some of God's good plans for his people are now elaborated in these next two chapters, filled with the promises of the gifts that are coming. Now, one of the things that we do at Advent, Advent is preparation for the birth of Christ. We're sort of putting ourselves back in the situation of those Israelites who are waiting for the coming Messiah. So we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we're looking forward. Now, That's a little bit, uh, you know, we're trying to imagine what it's like because Jesus has already come, but it also, it resonates with us. And it resonates with us because we're still waiting, not for the first coming of Christ now, but for his second coming, when he's going to bring to completion everything that he began, when he's going to bring to, to finality, when he's going to finally make an end of sin. So we wait. We wait and we resonate with these passages that are looking forward to what God is going to do through Christ. So I want to read these verses. That's enough introduction. Let me read them and let me ask if you're able, would you be willing to stand for the reading of God's word with me? 
Jeremiah 31, uh, 1 through 14, and then 31 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and I'll gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for these great and precious promises that you have given to your people, that you will be our God. We will be your people. You will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. You will make us glad, radiant over the goodness of the Lord. So, Father, we ask, would you fulfill your word? Make these promises true. Let us experience the great joy that comes with knowing the word of the Lord and your faithfulness to it. Speak to us, we pray. Give us open eyes to see, open ears to hear, soft hearts to receive, to 
treasure up, to store your word, and to practice it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's the phrase there in verse 2, the people who survived the sword found great... I'm sorry, please be seated. (laughs) You're lucky I looked up when I did. That could have gone on. (laughs) Verse 2, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. It's a profound thought to me that that line, they found grace in the wilderness, because we remember that although we read these great and precious promises and that this is truly one of the sweetest passages in Jeremiah, we remember that these are words that are spoken to the people while they're still in exile. That they're not yet experiencing these promises. They're experiencing slavery and exile. They're away from the promised land. And remember Psalm 137? And they told him to sing, and they said, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? There I sat down and I wept. That's the reality of life, and yet into that, God gives these great and precious promises, and he says they found grace in the wilderness. And some of that grace is simply outlined for us, what it means in the midst of the wilderness to find the grace of the Lord by trusting his promises, by believing what he says will come to pass. Look at verse 3. I want to look at just a couple of phrases out of this, but but particularly verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That is the promise of God to his people, even in the midst of exile, to say to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, there is a cartoon on PBS in the mornings these days that some of you young people, kids, you might know the cartoon Daniel Tiger. It's about a little tiger named Daniel. And every episode has this little ditty, it's the little lesson, and they sing this lesson. It's a little life lesson, a little moral that they are to learn, and some of them are very good and very helpful, and I've been known to sing them to my own kids. But there's one episode that I find a little depressing, because the the moral that Daniel learns is this, grown-ups come back. Now, I know some toddlers do struggle when their, their parents leave for work, but I also know Part of the reason that they made an episode trying to encourage kids to know that grown-ups come back is, is simply because in this world, a lot of kids don't experience that. Sometimes kids experience the opposite, that grown-ups haven't come back. And we live in a world where everything is transient and things don't last and, and nothing is permanent. And that includes love and commitment. That those things are not, not permanent and, and It's so rare for us in this fallen world to truly experience a love that lasts, particularly through difficult times. What we call love is often temporary and it's unstable and it's not to be trusted. It's not to be counted on. It's this emotion and it comes and goes. Who can control emotions? You just have to adjust to your new reality and and move on. And that's sort of the cultural understanding of love. But we recognize that that cultural understanding has nothing to do with biblical love. That God says to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And his love is not temporary. It's not transient. It does not fluctuate with the seasons or with his feelings or with circumstances. But he loves his people with an everlasting love. And he promises them that even at the specific moment when they might be tempted to think that God has withdrawn his love. 
Because there they are in Babylon. They're not in the promised land. They're in exile. And yet God speaks to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So if it's not uh, this cultural version of transient, temporary, unstable love, what is God's love, the biblical concept of God's love for his people like? Well, we're we're always quick to point out that it's not just an emotion. It's not just a, a warm feeling that you get. That's not what biblical love is. But we should add, God does feel that way about his people. He does love them. He does and like them, too. Hosea 11 is maybe one of my favorite chapters. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. It's after Daniel. Hosea 11, God describes something of his love for his people. And if you have read Hosea, you know Hosea is not a very touchy-feely kind of book. Hosea tells it like it, like it is. But listen to what he says. Uh, Hosea 11, look at verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. This is a picture of God and his parental love for his people. It's as though he's taken his people by the hand to teach them to walk, and, and they think they're doing it on their own. They don't know that it's God who's leading them. But in that selfless kind of, of parental love, he, he cares for them, even when they don't return it. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? In the end, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. You hear the, something of the heart of God towards his people here, that he cares for them, that he loves them. And, and this warm feeling that God has, that's not the, the complete description of God's love, but that's part of it. He truly feels this sense of compassion and delight for his children, even at a time when they're not giving back to him that love that they ought to show. So God's love for his people, that's everlasting. It starts with those feelings that he cares for them and he likes them, but it's also love is shown in sacrificial service. God's love for his people is shown in sacrificial service towards his people. Think of Romans 5.8. It almost defines what love is and it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That that sacrificial service of Jesus Christ humbling himself to come to be born in the manger, to grow up and take our sins and go to the cross, that is the very demonstration of God's love. It starts with the feelings, but that feeling quickly moves to action and to sacrifice and to service that God loves his people and therefore he gives to them. Therefore he is willing to die on behalf of the one who is loved. That shows us the extent of God's love. You see, it's so easy for us to misjudge the love of God for us. To misjudge it. Because this is a love that, that does not leave. Right? Because Jeremiah is speaking to the people who are in exile. They're in exile because of disobedience. They're suffering uh, the, the curses of the covenant that have been removed from the land, and yet God loves them at the very same time. See, how often are we tempted to do something like this? We look around at our circumstances. 
And, and we look at our circumstances, and, and based on our circumstances, we draw conclusions about how God feels about us, right? about the depth of his love for us. Rather than, the Bible says we should actually do exactly the opposite. We should look first at God and his love for us, understand that, and then we can draw some conclusions about our present circumstances. We don't judge his love for us based on our circumstances. We judge our circumstances based on his love for us. After all, Hebrews, Hebrews reminds us when it says, what father is there that doesn't discipline his children? And of course, discipline, it says, is not pleasant at the time, but it's a sign of love. See, we think of it as the opposite. We think, well, if it's not pleasant, there's not love being communicated. But Hebrews says it's just the opposite. It's discipline, it's not pleasant, but that is the sign of his love, that he cares for his children, that he disciplines them, that he leads them in the way of wisdom, and that sometimes means discipline. And so that's why Jeremiah starts with this. He starts with the, this, this overarching reality that God has loved you with an everlasting love and that there is no circumstance that you're experiencing, either now or in the future, that can change that. The everlasting love of God is the foundation. That is the given. Now, you need to learn to look at your circumstances and evaluate them in light God's love for you. Do you remember last week I mentioned part of Paul's prayer for the people in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3 where he tells them that he is praying that God might grant to them to be strengthened with power by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them in order that they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But that is Paul's prayer. We, we hear the earnestness in that. See, oftentimes when we talk about God, we think, well, we might have a very deep and philosophical and involved discussion about God's sovereignty or his providence or his omniscience or something like that that, that really plums the depth of our own understanding. But we tend to think, well, God's love, that's, that's Christianity 101. I mean, that's basic. We get that, right? That's, that's the easy part. Of course we understand that. Paul seems to assume exactly the opposite, doesn't he? Paul seems to be working on the understanding that, that actually the church does not fully understand the love of God. And therefore, this is something that he earnestly prays for. That he says, for this reason I bend my knee before the Father that that by the power of his spirit you may be strengthened in order to comprehend this. In order that you might grasp, and you have to have the power of the spirit in order to do this, because this isn't easy, but that you might grasp what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ, that, what, that surpasses knowledge. He says, this is not Christianity 101. We, we grasp but the tiniest sliver, and he says, it's my prayer that the church might grow in its understanding of the love of Christ. I can't help but think, what, what would it be for us as we begin a new year to make that a goal for 2018, that the Lord will give us a new strength to comprehend the love of Christ? And what would that do to us? What would that do to our life together as a church if we understood more 
deeply the love of Christ? How would that change our family lives if we understood the love of Christ the way Paul prays that the church will understand the love of Christ? How would it change the way that we went to work? How would it change the way we came home from work? With a greater and deeper and fuller grasp of the love of God in Christ. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ compels us, or it controls us. He says what he knows of the love of Christ, the, the, the comprehension that he has of that, is, is so overwhelming that it controls his life. What is controlling your life? Is it the love of God in Christ? This is a love that is so powerful, it not only controls the one who feels the love to control their actions, but it compels the one who receives the love. So that's the, that's the depth of the profundity of the love of Christ, that it's not just what is given, but to receive that love compels you. Because being loved with that kind of love it changes you. That's the way it works on the human heart. It changes you. I once heard a, an, this illustration to, to help explain it. Is Imagine you're away on a trip. You've gone maybe business, maybe vacation, but you've asked someone to keep an eye on your house. They come in every now and then to water the plants, to check the mail, etc. Um, and, and at one point they mentioned to you, oh, by the way, I, I, I noticed on the table that there was a bill that you had forgotten to pay. But don't worry about it. I went ahead and paid it for you. It's taken care of. No late fee, etc. Well, what do you do? Well, it depends on the size of the bill, right? You know, if it was a, a $9 bill that you had to pay and they paid it, you say, thank you, great, thanks. That was good of them. But if it was your mortgage that you were a bit behind on and the house was about to be repossessed by the bank and they covered that for you, you say, I, I'm yours. What, what do you demand of me? I, I'll serve you. It depends on the size of the service. That kind of love to cover a you know, $1,000 bill, that changes you. It would compel you. What if the situation were actually like this? The person had actually found that, that there was a bill on the table there for $85,000. They knew you couldn't pay it. And so they knew that it would wreck you to try to do that, so they decided that they would let it wreck themselves instead. That they would sell their house, sell their car, they were going to cash out their retirement. They were going to give up their entire future so they could cover this bill for you, and they paid it. They knew it would wreck you, they decided to let it wreck them instead. But somewhere along the line, there was a miscommunication. And you thought the bill that they paid was $10. And so you say, oh, thanks, and you move right along, and, and that's all. You don't bring it up again. I think the reality is for many of us that, that that describes our spiritual comprehension of the love of God for us in Christ. The, the, the reality of what has happened is that Christ has found us with a debt that is completely unpayable. It would wreck us, literally. It would lead to our eternal death and judgment, and yet he has said, I will allow that to wreck me instead. Right? The, the executioner came and he offered himself instead and said, well, can he go free? He said, yes. And so he gave his own life for us 
But somewhere along the way, rather than understanding the depth of the love of Christ, we thought, well, he, paid a, he did us a little favor. He paid a small bill, and so our lives aren't changed by it. And so Paul's prayer is that by the power of the Spirit, we might see the reality. We might know what actually went on in that transaction, the depth of what God did for us in Christ, that he has loved us with an everlasting love. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, that God has loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Christmas is about the love of God. And so what do we do? Look at verse 7 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, Sing. Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. God's love is the foundation for the grace that we receive and the response to the grace is for us to sing. For us to sing. The people are still in the wilderness. They haven't yet experienced the full reality, the full benefits of all the promises that God gives to his people. They are still suffering and yet Jeremiah the prophet says to them, sing. He's announced them, he's told them that the good news that they're loved with an everlasting Love and the only response is, is to sing. Do you understand singing is an act of faith? Singing is an act of faith. We're not purely giving praise to God for what has already been given for the blessings that we currently receive, but we sing because we trust him for all of the blessings in heaven and earth that are yours in Jesus Christ. And that includes some of the good, concrete things that we even now enjoy, but there are many yet to come. You notice that many of the songs that we sing as a church, have you ever noticed the last line, the last verse, is almost always looking to the future. It's about what God is going to do for us through Christ that he hasn't done yet. So we sing, When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation to take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. And we sing, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. Those are things that haven't happened yet, but they will. And so we sing, we praise God, we give him all of the thanks and the praise and the glory for that which he has done and that which he will do. I don't know about you, but when I sing those lines, my heart is stirred by that. To be reminded of the great hope that is ours, to be reminded that this everlasting love is not passive, but it's active on our behalf, that there are good things that you and I have to look forward to, that we claim by faith. Those things are ours. They are promises. They are no less sure for us than if they had already happened and we could already see them. And that singing itself, is, is, it's an act of worship. It's a response of praise. But doesn't it also fortify your heart to sing of that great hope? Doesn't it encourage you? Doesn't it reinforce your hope? Doesn't it give substance to your faith? to respond to the good news with singing, to sing by faith. 
we sing as an act of faith. Because finally, God says, verse 12, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Those were words that this week really stood out to me. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord and it describes it fully in this Old Testament sense over the grain and the wine, the oil and the young of the flock and the herd. These are the the stereotypical blessings that were seen as the tangible signs of all the goodness of the Lord. And it says when they receive these blessings, when they receive the goodness of the Lord, it says they will be radiant over what? Over the goodness of the Lord. It means every gift is received and taken as an excuse to glory, not in the gift itself, but in the God who gave it. To be radiant over the goodness of the Lord on behalf of the people. And this is what it looks like when he fulfills this promise that he will be our God, we will be his people. Receiving all the blessings from God's hand, being led by him, receiving rest from him, being satisfied with his goodness. That's verse 14. I'll feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. We shall be satisfied with his goodness. If you need a prayer to make your prayer for this Christmas season, make it verse 14. Lord, may we be satisfied with your goodness. May we be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. We receive these promises. We sing in response. We praise the Lord because here's the good news. Christmas is the beginning of the end. Christmas is the beginning of the end. That's what Israel would have received from this, that all these things that they are now suffering are about to end. All of their sorrows, all of their sickness, all of their tears, all of their suffering is coming to an end when Christ the King is born. When Christ the King is born, it's the beginning of many things. It's the beginning of a God reigning as righteous King over his people in justice and in righteousness when his people would be exalted above the nations, but it's also the beginning of the end, the end of our sorrow. It's the end of temptation. It's the end of oppression by those who don't know the Lord. It will be the end. Now, he says there in verse 31, he says, days are coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. All of this is coming now. For us, we're... We're not in that situation. We're on the other side. Those days have begun to come. right? Jesus has been born. He has inaugurated the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's begun, but it's not completed yet. Theologians describe this day saying, we live in the already and the not yet. It's already begun, but it's not yet complete. We don't yet live in the complete fulfillment, the complete uh, reception of all of the promises and all of their great glorious fulfillment that will be the full the final state that will be the that one great day when jesus christ returns a second time to make good every promise that he has begun that will be the final fulfillment of it but christmas is the beginning of the end as we celebrate christmas we look forward to all the things which god has done for us in christ knowing that he brings those to completion you may still feel that you are in the wilderness. You may still feel that this is 
a, a, a season of suffering, of sorrow, of doubt, of temptation, of sickness, of injury, of, of want, of need. Whatever it may be, it may be a season of wilderness for you, but God proclaims grace in the wilderness to those who believe because he has loved you with an everlasting love. And Christ comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. This is the beginning. It's the beginning of the end of sorrow. It's the beginning of all the goodness of God for us in Christ. That will be our full possession one day. And we will be, on that day, radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you all of the praise and the glory. For you are a good and loving Father. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You have cared for your people. You have nurtured us. You have been faithful to us when we have been unfaithful to you. We have gone astray and you have come to look for us. You have found us. You have put us on your shoulders. You have brought us home in order that you might still make us into your children, that you might be our God and that we might be your people. We pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, may this not be the stone on the path that is by the birds, but Lord, may it take root in our hearts. May it grow. May it bear 30, 60, even 100 times that which is sin, that we might know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, the love of God for us. <laughs>